You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. Institutions protect themselves, and if they get information that they think poses some kind of existential threat to them, their impulse is not to deal with it constructively, and we see it again and again, whether it's the NFL, the Catholic Church, the sugar industry, tobacco, or the fossil fuel industry. For July 20th, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. If I told you that you have no choice but to give your money every day to a company that will then use that money to undermine the energy transition in a thousand different ways, and openly flaunt the law and regulations in so doing, and to flagrantly lie about it all to the public and the press and, well, everybody but the SEC, and that you have no alternative but to keep sending them that money, and that there's nobody to prevent all this from happening except a ragtag crew of self-appointed watchdogs with negligible funding, would you believe it? Well, believe it, because for a great many of us, it's true. And those companies spending your money to work against your best interests? None other than your local utility. In this episode, we peel back the covers on a topic that we haven't discussed very much on this show, utility corruption. We'll explore the various ways that they block progress on the energy transition, refuse to reduce their own emissions, and make it difficult for consumer energy resources to participate on the power grid. We'll review some of the more notable cases of corruption in the utility sector in the U.S. and hear how activists are asking the federal government to crack down on their abuses. We'll detail the many dirty tactics they use to work against the public interest for their own profit, and we'll learn what the public and its scrappy consumer advocates can do about it. Our guide through this rogues gallery is David Pomerantz, the executive director of the Energy and Policy Institute, or EPI, a watchdog organization that exposes anti-clean energy, anti-democracy behavior by fossil fuel companies, utilities, and their lobbying and public relations machines through investigative research and analysis. Prior to joining EPI in 2016, David spent eight years working with Greenpeace on campaigns to move the electric sector away from fossil fuels and towards clean energy. He has a wealth of knowledge on this topic, and I'm very pleased that he was willing to share some of it with our audience. Then in the news segment, we'll note a timely case in point in Arizona. We'll review the latest use of the Defense Production Act by President Biden. We'll check out an exciting development for district heating and a huge new award for renewable power in New York. And we'll put a cork in the VC summer nuclear plant debacle. But before we go to the interview, announcements, announcements, announcements. We're very pleased to welcome our latest group subscribers, who all are, coincidentally, part of the utility sector. Origin Energy is a major integrated electricity generator and electricity and natural gas provider, and is Australia's leading energy retailer. And in the interest of disclosure, I'll note that I am currently doing some consulting work for Origin, apart from the podcast. Also joining our group subscribers is Omaha Public Power District, a publicly owned electric utility in the U.S. state of Nebraska, serving more than 855,000 people. Finally, we welcome Tibber, a digital electricity supplier based in Norway that helps customers minimize their utility bills. We're so pleased to add them all to our growing roster of commercial companies that have licensed the Energy Transition Show so that their staff can access our entire catalog of complete shows as well as our other features. So, in alphabetical order, here's a big thank you to Adelphi, AES, Ascend Analytics, 
BP, GE Gas Power Group, and GE's Onshore Wind Group, Google, Microsoft, Power Systems Consultants, and Tibber. And to underscore the point that not all utilities are on the wrong side of the energy transition, here are some utilities that are subscribers to this show. BC Hydro, Grupo Energia Bogota, National Gas Company of Trinidad and Tobago, Omaha Public Power District, Origin Energy, and Toronto Hydro. We're very grateful for their support. And if you think your colleagues would benefit from listening to our full shows and having access to our extensive research notes on every show, just drop a line to accounts at energytransitionshow.com and we'll get the process started. The enrollment process is simple. Finally, if you're considering a career in energy transition but haven't checked out our job board in a while, you should log into our website and peruse the new listings. I see recently posted openings for a utility analyst, a regional planner and community engagement expert, a solar technology cost analyst, a distributed generation modeler, numerous economists, and an administrative assistant. There's something for everyone, so join the legions of people working to advance the energy transition today. And now, our conversation with David Pomerantz, recorded June 6th, 2022. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, David, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks so much for having me. As explained on your website, your organization, the Energy and Policy Institute, is a watchdog organization working to expose attacks on renewable energy and to counter misinformation by the fossil fuel and utility interests. So you track and expose the enemies and the losers of the energy transition, I guess is the way I would put it. Now, I generally prefer to highlight positive stories about the energy transition on this show, so we arguably haven't given that much attention to the bad guys. Probably the closest we've gotten to doing a show about utility corruption was episode 73 on regulatory capture, although we did touch on this topic a bit in our conversation with Leah Stokes in episode 121 as well. But with so many instances of utility corruption and deliberate attempts to undermine the energy transition cropping up in recent months, I felt like it was about time we did a show on it. So I'm glad you agreed to share your perspective with our listeners. And so let's just start with the basics. How is utility corruption a problem for the energy transition? Well, thanks so much for having me on, Chris. And I'm very happy to talk about all this. I'm with you. I like thinking positively about where we're headed and all the positive trends in the transition from fossil fuels to clean energy. But we kind of have to know, just like you said, anytime there's a transition, there are going to be stakeholders who you know, are on the losing end of that and don't want to see that happen. And in the case of the energy transition, some of them are well-funded and can be quite creative about how to block the sort of policies and politics that are required to have as fast a transition to clean energy as possible happen. And so it's worth knowing about them and understanding them and ultimately trying to get those obstacles out of the way. So yeah, let's talk about utilities. Maybe I'll start off by talking about electric utilities, but I do want to make sure we also talk about gas utilities, which are an important part of this too. In this day and age are often many of the same companies, which complicates things a little bit. Indeed. But there's a bunch of ways that electric utilities are blocking a rapid transition and an equitable transition from fossil fuels to clean energy. So one clear example is just looking at their own portfolios of power generation, sort of utility scale, utility-owned generation, and utility-contracted generation, they're still moving very slowly to transition from coal and gas to wind, solar, energy efficiency, to the full portfolio of clean resources. And so we've looked at this over the last few years that utilities like to focus on how much they've reduced carbon in the last couple of decades. And in fairness, they have considerably. I mean, most of that 
reduction comes from the cratering of the coal industry as a generation source in the US. Yeah. But if you look at where we want them to head, very, very few utilities are transitioning at the pace required. So we've done a couple of reports on this. You could see on EPI's website, looking at just how slowly utilities, including utilities who say, you know, we have net zero carbon goals, are transitioning, are actually changing their capital investments, retiring coal plants, and stopping building and contracting for new gas to instead build wind and solar. It's happening very slowly. I give a bunch of examples of that. So they're just not moving quickly enough in terms of their own generation. And then, you know, that's sort of happening on a spectrum. I think there are utilities who are moving a little faster and moving a little slower. And it's worth acknowledging those differences. One thing that there's less of a spectrum on is how at least investor-owned utilities are treating distributed resources. So people can have debates about how much of our clean energy future should come from distributed resources or central resources, large-scale solar power plants versus rooftop solar. But I think most sort of responsible folks of good faith would say that we need both desperately. You know, the task is so tall in front of us in terms of decarbonizing our electricity sources that we really need all of that stuff. And when it comes to assets that utilities don't own, so that ranges from rooftop solar to energy efficiency, demand response, even larger solar farms that are owned by third parties, utilities are doing everything they can to throw up obstacles to that. And that's happening at the state policy level primarily, but but certainly federally also. So they're moving too slowly on their own clean energy transition, and they're they're downright blocking the ability of customers to lead that transition for themselves. So what are some of the ways that they block the advance of consumer side resources? I still struggle with this. I hate the term distributed energy resources or DERs. It's just such a wonky mouthful. And it's really the utility perspective also (laughs) on things. When we're talking about distributed resources and all the things you just listed and many more as well, I think what we're really talking about is things that are owned not by the utility, but by a customer or by a third party. And so maybe we should just call them consumer resources or customer resources or consumer energy. So what are some of the ways that utilities block their participation? Yeah, I agree with your editorial note there. We should (laughs) define things by what they are and not what they aren't. And consumer-owned resources or consumer resources is probably not a a perfect definition. I'm not sure there is one, but that's a good way to think of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a lot of it happens in the rate-making process. So when you think about whether it's a a community solar farm that's owned by a company that's selling that energy to the utility to distribute to customers or rooftop solar or an aggregated demand response resource or any of these customer side resources, you know, they are contributing value to the grid. And it's a whole other wonky conversation. You probably had many guests who are better qualified than I am to talk about all those different value streams, but they're providing energy to the grid and other services. So the utility has to pay them for that. And most of these questions kind of revolve around what the utility should pay for it. But that's ultimately set by a regulator, usually a public utilities commission. Legislators can also weigh into that. And utilities are incredibly politically powerful with those entities. Generally speaking, massive amounts of influence over the public utility commissions that regulate them 
They have a lot of influence with state lawmakers in the states where they operate. And with that whole policymaking ecosystem, that includes the governor who appoints the PUCs, legislative committees that nominate regulators for the PUC, even consumer advocates The most states have, not all, but most states have a formal consumer advocate whose role is to represent customers in utility proceedings in front of the Public Utilities Commission. And most of them do a great job in their efforts to do that, even though they're outgunned and out-resourced by the utilities. But those consumer advocates are also often appointed by governors or legislators. So all of this ultimately is political. And I think a lot of folks maybe feel a little uncomfortable or a little icky acknowledging that. We want to believe that these policy debates are just sort of happening on the merits. Like how much should a solar customer be paid for the electricity they provide to the grid? Well, that should be a question of what time they provide it. The value might be different at different times of day or in different geographical locations of the grid. And all those things are true. But I think sometimes in this world, we act like those values are being set totally by purely technocratic, meritocratic conversations. And in fact, it's all deeply political because it matters so much to the utility companies and the other stakeholders too involved in the process. And they're also trying to influence politics, but the utilities have this huge incumbency advantage and they've been doing it for a long time. And their whole operation is really attuned to that, Mm -hmm. to being able to exert influence over the policymaking apparatus. Right. But in terms of tactics, like specific things that they do to block the participation of consumer side resources, what kind of things do utilities do? Sure. Well, they tack on fees and standby charges and higher costs to consumer side solar. Investor and utilities have blocked transmission from coming online that would enable generation that they don't themselves own from connecting to the grid. They have dramatically slowed down interconnection queues for consumer-owned solar. So if you're an independent solar project developer, or even if you're just a homeowner who wants a solar system on your roof, you have to apply to the utility to get permission to actually physically connect to the grid and exchange energy with the grid. That's the interconnection process. And so they've put bureaucratic processes in place that just slow that whole thing down. Yeah, that's right. I mean, unless you want to do something sort of radically off-grid, which is not practical for most people or scalable, most consumer side resources ultimately are dependent on the utility to connect them. Right. And so, yeah, the utility has all the leverage there and they're using that in a bunch of ways. So beyond slowing down the interconnection queue, many utilities have engineered the policy environment to put a cap on the amount of rooftop solar that can be a share of generation. They have put fees and standby charges and really made the process of connection incredibly labyrinthine. They're not offering bi-directional tariffs for a variety of solutions to the energy transition that customers could own on their side of the meter. So yeah, there's a whole host of ways that utilities are slowing down customer side resources. Mm-hmm. Okay. And as you mentioned a moment ago, there's also in the rate making process, there's all sorts of ways that they can also just sort of stymie the participation of consumer resources, not offering appropriate or bi-directional tariffs, for example, so that let's say a demand response resource or storage on the customer side can actually participate and get paid. So 
There's all sorts of shenanigans like that. So for those who don't follow this topic like you and I do, they might not really see a problem with utilities owning these assets. You know, in, in terms of the overall project of the energy transition, I guess as long as they get built and it speeds up the energy transition, it should be okay, right? So why is it undesirable for utilities to own the solutions instead of just being good partners and facilitators for other companies, third parties who want to connect to the grid in order to sell their services? That's a great question, Chris. And I should say, other people may have uh, different perspectives on this, but at least speaking for myself here, I have no problem with utilities owning wind farms, owning solar farms, owning nuclear plants, contracting for those services to a degree. Things may happen a lot faster if they're out of the generation game entirely. That's sort of a bigger conversation. But utilities want to own all of that. And there are big problems with that. So yes, you're right that a... If you're coming at this new and you're saying, my priority is getting gigawatts of fossil fuels switched to gigawatts of renewables, and I don't really care what the ownership structure is, as long as that happens, you might say, well, the utilities are really politically powerful. They are equipped to make big capital expenditures. They have access to lots of capital, which the energy transition requires. Why don't we just let them do all of this? And there's a few problems with that. One is, to some degree, that's sort of the status quo, and they're not doing it. So we have a real-world experiment of how that's working out. And utilities that have some of the strongest monopolies that really do have huge walls around their service territory, a great deal of political leverage. I'm thinking of companies like Duke Energy or Southern Company in the Southeast, where there aren't even RTOs. They have that ability, and they're not doing it. They're continuing to run coal plants far past when they're economic. They're continuing to build gas plants of highly questionable need, probably to try to run those assets into the ground too, even when they've stopped being economic. So one simple answer is utilities who are given all those privileges are not enacting the clean energy transition. You could ask another question, which is, well, what if we made them? What if we could imagine a world where we sort of let the utility keep its monopoly as intact and strong as ever, but we just sort of force them to use the kinds of zero carbon fuel that we want them to and to retire coal and gas plants. I'm skeptical that that would work, but there's another problem with it, which is cost. So we know this from experience that we can build those resources into the grid at far lower costs if it happens competitively, if customers are allowed to be part of that if other producers and other firms are allowed to be part of it. And that stands for reason. Utilities have monopolies. That gives them outsized market power. They can use that market power to do things more and rack up their profits, which they get from expending capital. In theory, a regulator is supposed to protect customers from that market power, but that doesn't always work perfectly because utilities tend to use their market power to accrue political power, and that allows them to influence the regulators. So having customers and competitors be part of the process, make sure that this happens a lot faster and a lot cheaper. And I'll give one more reason why that's important. I think we're already starting to see examples of this. If you let electric utilities sort of monopolize the clean energy transition entirely on their terms, and they do it more expensively than it might otherwise happen, there will be political backlash. So I think customers from probably across the political spectrum will say, 
hey, this is just kind of a scam to enrich the utility. And from their perspective, it may indeed look like that. Now, they may be getting benefits in terms of cleaner air and less catastrophic climate change. But if they're seeing their bills go up by more than they should, if they should at all, that kind of threatens the political durability of the whole energy transition project. Right. All right. Well, even when they've been offered the opportunity to play a supportive role in the energy transition, many utilities, especially the investor-owned utilities, which we also call IOUs, still don't want to do it, do they? No, they don't. I mean, the Biden administration gave utilities a golden opportunity through their proposed clean electricity performance program to speed up their transition to clean energy and get paid for it. And yeah. many of the biggest investor and utilities balked at that opportunity and some of them outright undermined it. So we've studied this at EPI. We've looked at the country's biggest IOUs in the last couple of years and found that they're not planning to phase out their use of coal and gas quickly enough to make the power sector zero carbon by 2035, which is the Biden administration's goal. Hmm. Others have looked at it too. Sierra Club's looked at it and they've graded out utilities very poorly on this question of the speed of their transition. There are a couple of utilities who are pursuing emissions reduction at a rapid enough pace that they could conceivably get in that ballpark. You know, NIPSCO in Indiana has been close, but there are other utilities and they include the biggest ones in the country like American Electric Power, Duke Energy, Southern Company. They have all, in spite of having highfalutin carbon goals that they tout to investors, if you look at their actual resource plans, they've all set pathways to decarbonize at very slow rates during the next decade, which is obviously the most crucial time is the one right in front of us. So they're not there yet, for sure. And they also rely on things like squishy carbon offsets and accounting tricks and loopholes to make their case oftentimes, rather than just simply saying, we're going to shut down these coal plants on this date, this date, this date, and we're going to replace it with clean power. Like it's oftentimes they're not coming to the table with a clear transition plan that actually makes sense for concrete action on the energy transition. That's right. Many of them are trying to hide the ball on that stuff. Yeah. You know, I would rather a utility tell us exactly what they're going to retire and what they're going to build and have it be maybe slower than I might like or other climate advocates might like, but honest than what many of them do instead, which is to sort of hide behind undetermined amounts of offsets or sort of hand-waving at technologies that are not established yet to help them in the out years. Many of those companies do have to make clear statements about their actual capital expenditures and asset plans, they just do that elsewhere in front of regulators where they're required to. And you could see if you compare what they're saying to regulators versus their sort of glossy carbon plans to investors that things don't actually line up mm-hmm. or they line up only relying on sort of magical thinking about carbon removals in 2048 to hit their 2050 goal. Right. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of that these days, aren't we? I mean, even outside the field of energy, I'm thinking now about recent stories about crypto companies and so on, where they're just flat out lying in public to their customers. 
or to the public or to journalists where they're required to tell the truth under penalty of law, <laughs> they tell a very different story, like when they're telling a story to regulators, right? So there's a problem there. You know, you mentioned a moment ago how utilities will often project that they're going to take some sort of vague action on energy transition predicated on technologies that are not yet commercial. And also, I would add to that, using dates that are so far in the future that it's easy for them not to take action in the immediate or near term because they can just say, oh, well, we're going to deal with that by 2035. And not having to also produce a plan to say, well, to get from here to 2035, we're going to do this in 2023 and this in 2024. <laughs> like, nobody's making them do that either. So it's, it's very hand-wavy, vague stuff. And I think that's a problem. I wonder if you'd like to just quickly rhyme off a few of these technologies that maybe aren't really commercial yet that they seem to like to rely on when they're being disingenuous. Yep, absolutely. There's a wave right now where I would say small modular nuclear reactors are in vogue for utilities to talk about in terms of how they're going to achieve their, right. their goals. For gas utilities, we should talk more about gas utilities, but hydrogen and what they would call renewable natural gas or RNG, I just call it biomethane, yeah. but they're highly reliant on those to sort of square the circle around their carbon goals. Hydrogen generally, I mean, across the sector, including for electric utilities is a popular, a popular tech that they are using to justify how they're going to make their carbon goals. Many of them are fairly bullish on carbon capture and sequestration. And I'll say on all these things, I'm not necessarily anti any of those technologies per se, right? or governments investing in research and demonstration budgets and to the, any of those things, maybe some of them will be part of the solution. Sure. My problem with it is when utilities use the promise of technologies that do not exist, at least to say that to do the things that they say they'll do right now to justify continued investments in fossil fuels. And that's what we're seeing is we've documented this at EPI and folks can go to some of the reports at energyandpolicy.org to see some of this, but there are a whole slew of electric utilities who are proposing building new gas-fired power plants and saying, well, it's okay, 15 years from now, we'll have figured out how to blend so much hydrogen into the fuel stream for that plant, and it'll be green hydrogen created with wind and solar. And so don't worry about us building a fossil fuel asset right now, we'll hydrogen our way out of it down the road. And that's the disingenuous part. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me build this carbon emitting plant today because I promise it'll run on unicorn farts in the future. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. That's the bumper sticker for the industry right now. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. 
In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. As Dave mentioned in our conversation, Salt River Project, or SRP, an agency of the state of Arizona that serves as an electrical utility for the Phoenix metropolitan area, had proposed in February to spend nearly $1 billion to add 16 new single-cycle gas combustion turbines with a combined capacity of 820 megawatts to its gas-fired Coolidge Generation Station in Coolidge, Arizona. The plan was criticized by residents of Randolph, an economically depressed, historic African-American community, and the Hispanic and Native American residents of the surrounding area, who would have been exposed to its emissions. It was also deemed to be poorly justified, with SRP asserting, without proof, that the gas turbines would be needed to maintain reliability and to balance variable wind and solar power on its system. Although the Arizona Corporation Commission, or ACC, the utility regulator in the state, does not regulate SRP rates, the ACC needed to grant SRP a Certificate of Environmental Compatibility because of the size of the expansion. Still stinging from the electoral rebukes it had received for its corruption in recent years, the ACC denied the expansion in April, citing, quote, legal and factual errors in the decision. In May, SRP asked for a rehearing and reconsideration of the expansion, claiming that the ACC relied on faulty legal and factual conclusions in their decision, incorrectly deemed the project application incomplete, and should not have made conclusions regarding anticipated environmental impacts on Randolph. Then, on June 7th, the ACC again voted to deny it. SRP has said it will consider its generation and market options now, including whether to seek judicial review before the Arizona Superior Court. But if the ACC did regulate SRP's rates, I have little doubt that solar and storage, not inefficient gas combustion turbines, would in fact turn out to be the least cost way to maintain system reliability for SRP. The only reason it can propose to keep investing in gas turbines and claiming that they're the least cost way to ensure reliability with a straight face is because it is not subject to the kinds of regulatory oversight that investor-owned utilities are. Item 2. On June 6th, President Biden invoked the Defense Production Act to support domestic manufacturing of clean energy technologies, including solar, hydrogen, heat pumps, insulation, and grid components like transformers. Supply chains for these items have been struggling to keep up with demand, and their deployment must be massively accelerated. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. 
Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.